Hi, everyone. Today's interview is an interview that I have been waiting to have for quite some time since I read the book, Counterfeit Kingdom. You guys have seen me post about this book. You have seen me write about this book. The reason why is that this is actually kind of a personal book for me. It talks a lot about the, the new age in the church, which is something I talk about often on my channel and I'm very passionate about because in the new age, I saw teachings and I was participating in beliefs and things that I didn't realize weren't Christian, got out of the new age, and then saw the things that I believed in many churches being practiced. And it blew my mind. And here with me today, I have two people that are what I would consider maybe experts in the NAR, which is the new uh, apostolic reformation that uh, we have seen in many of our churches. Uh Holly and Doug, first, I want to thank you both so much for coming onto my channel today. I would love for you guys to briefly tell my audience about who you are and why you have some degree of authority to talk about this topic. Well, thanks so much, Melissa, for having us on. We've been really looking forward to this. Um, and so um, I have been researching the New Apostolic Reformation since really about 2002 when I first learned about it. I was working at Biola University at the time as the university editor and as the managing editor, editor of Biola Magazine, um, I have a master's degree in Christian apologetics, which I earned at Biola. Um, and so at the time I first learned about this movement, I was, I was surprised I had never heard about it because I had researched a lot of cults and, and aberrant religious groups. I was writing for the Christian Research Journal about that time. And so... Um, so it was just something I was surprised that even back in 2002 was so large and influential and I hadn't heard of up to that point. Since then, I've I've written uh, uh, four books with Doug Guyvet, uh, a professor that I met while working at Biola University. And um, I have a blog as well at hollypivot.com where I've been blogging about this movement throughout that time. And I live in Fairbanks, Alaska. I'm a homeschooling mom and a pastor's wife. Oh, that's really cool. I didn't know you lived in Alaska. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah, Doug, what's your background with this? All right. So, Melissa, I <clears throat> I live in uh, Southern California in uh, Orange County, <clears throat> excuse me, and I have been teaching at Biola University in the Talbot Department of Philosophy for the last nearly 30 years. I've just recently retired, so I'm a professor emeritus of philosophy there. And uh, as Holly said, I learned of this movement through her mm -hmm. and uh, the research that she had done. And then we began to collaborate a number of years ago when we wrote our first two books. And now recently we've released this uh, third book, Counterfeit Kingdom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this one uh, kind of kicked down the door in a good way, in my opinion. I think that this is really um, one that's picking up a lot of ground to help people really understand this movement. And speaking of that, so let's start off the scene for this whole thing. Cause some of my audience doesn't really, some of them know, and I would uh, venture to say that a lot of them do understand and know what the NAR is. Many of them have come from it, but for those that don't know, what is this movement? Can you define for my audience what it is? A main focus that you guys focus on is Bethel church. And I've also done a lot of research on them as well, but for this particular uh, topic, why are they significant to this movement as well? Well, Bethel Church in Redding, California is the most influential church in this movement today uh, with global influence. But the New Apostolic Reformation, for those who don't know, is a popular, fast-growing global movement uh, led by individuals who claim that 
that God is giving new apostles and prophets to the church for the purpose of bringing new revelation. And this new revelation will allegedly enable every Christian, all Christians to develop miraculous powers, such as mm -hmm. prophesying, healing the sick, raising the dead, working even greater miracles than Jesus worked, according to their teaching. And, um, and the purpose is so that like this in time miracle working army can be raised up so the church can bring uh, heaven to earth. So it's like a redefinition of the, of the great commission and um, leaders in this movement will claim that this movement is as big as, or even more significant than the Protestant reformation and in, in terms of its impact. And um, they would say that all Christians are supposed to be submitted to the leadership of these new apostles and prophets. Um, they don't use that word submit all the time. Uh, a lot of times they'll say all Christians are supposed to align with them, but this includes pastors and elders. So this means that even pastors and elders are supposed to submit to the authorities of these apostles and prophets who claim to hold the highest governing offices in the church. And um, they must govern because that's the way they bring their new revelation and they direct the church with their new revelation. Um, so there's an inherent inherent authority structure that lends itself to spiritual abuse. And we've received letters, um, communication with, with people literally from all around the world sharing stories of the harm they've experienced from this movement because the teachings are inherently divisive. Um, so the split churches, split families, um, just disillusionment with the Christian faith uh, because of promises made by the, the prophets of, of physical healing that didn't happen or, or prophecies that didn't happen. And so that's that's a reason we're really concerned about this movement is it has really hurt many people. And we like to point out that uh, the NAR movement or the New Apostolic Reformation uh, is not to be confused with classical Pentecostalism or mm -hmm. the charismatic movement. Uh, these are different things. <clears throat> and uh, whether or not you believe that the miraculous gifts are still operating today, you should be concerned about this movement because of what it teaches about the authority structure and about the nature of apostolic authority and, and prophetic powers and these activation exercises. And there's so much else that's unique to the movement that distinguishes it from the charismatic movement or from Pentecostals. And, and uh, people in the NAR, leaders in the NAR would like to have people think that they're just a natural expression or extension or part of this view of the Holy Spirit and the action and and the ongoing uh, operation of these gifts, but they have much more to say than just that. And so we've uh, described the problems in ways that you could accept and and agree with, whether or not you are charismatic or Pentecostal. Mm -hmm. And and we've seen uh, people across the spectrum of uh, Christian belief and practice, both uh, continuationists about spiritual gifts and uh, cessationists, uh, commend this critique because they see that that we're talking about something that's unique to NAR. Uh, another thing that we also like to emphasize 
is that people in NAR will oftentimes uh, deny that they have any affiliation with it, that they are yeah. NAR at all. They'll yeah. say, they'll disown the language, the terminology. Mm -hmm. And they, they might even say, what is that? New Apostolic Reformation? I have no idea what you're talking about. And uh, but that just means that to be sure that you're dealing with somebody that's part of this movement, you have to understand what it is they teach, what it is they practice, regardless of what they call themselves. Yeah, I've noticed that as well, where there's this ambiguity with understanding that you're a part of this movement. Now, with that being said, uh, something you talk a lot about in your book is apostles and prophets. There's research that I've done into the word of faith movement as well. In fact, I probably would know more, a little bit more about that than the NAR. Are there similarities between the NAR and the word of faith movement? Well, there's definite overlap. They're connected. Um, uh, so the NAR leaders, the apostles and prophets teach that the word of faith teachings, the prosperity gospel teachings are actually lost truths hmm. that uh, were lost by the church and that have been restored by present day apostles and prophets. And that these are actually pivotal truths that the church must have in order to bring God's kingdom to earth. So, for example, the prayer declarations of the word, you know, word of faith teaching that you speak reality, you can speak words that create reality, much like God spoke in Genesis and created. Mm -hmm. That's a pivotal core teaching and practice in the NAR because it's according to um, Bethel leaders, nothing happens in the kingdom of God without there first being a prayer declaration that's made. And so, um, and as what prosperity gospel teachings about wealth, um, you know, that there are prophecies in this movement called the one prophecy is called the great in time transfer of wealth. And according to this prophecy, God is given by many prophets in this movement. God is trans will be transferring the wealth of the wicked to the righteous under the leadership of the apostles. And the purpose of that wealth is to build God's kingdom on earth, to fund God's kingdom on earth. And so they've taken these prosperity gospel word of faith teachings and, and incorporated them under the, like the NAR theological framework. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Cause there's, there's an element there, especially the speaking into, to life, you know, like that, that faith is basically a power. There's a different definition for mm -hmm. it. And, uh, I read Bill Johnson's book when heaven invades earth. And it seems like there's just this over-realized es eschatology and that everything that revolves around their theology, signs, wonders, miracles, is literally to bring heaven back to earth. And mm -hmm. so if it happens in heaven, it has to happen on earth. And that brings me kind of segues me into my next question, because there seems to be this dissonance where somebody will say, will claim a healing. In fact, I have a friend whose husband is doing this very thing. Uh, he is caught up in these teachings and he is slowly dying uh, because he has a chronic illness that it could easily, easily be treated. But he believes that if he speaks it into existence, has faith, he will be healed. And there is no room for any, uh, any, any doubt. Any doubt that comes in is of the devil, uh, things like that. And he is slowly dying. He has, I think, three children. He has a wife and his wife, my friend is just not sure what to do. So you have this issue where people claim that they are already healed. They claim that they have received this 
divine visitation, maybe by an angel or even Jesus himself. You hear all these stories, right? Story after story, after story, after story. And they seem fantastical feathers falling from the ceiling, gold dust in Bibles, whatever it is, you name it. What do you make of these stories? And if they're not true or based in reality, how do you think, in your opinion, they make sense of them? Um, well, so you're talking about like all the miracle stories coming out of Bethel. Is this yes. what you're you're talking about? Yeah. yeah. Um, as far as all these miracle stories that are coming out of Bethel, I'm skeptical. Um, and I would say I'm not the only one. Um, uh, there are former students from BSSM who have come out of BSSM saying that in their opinion, they never saw a genuine miracle during their, all their years at Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry of people that have come out of Bethel Church and other NAR churches saying that they've never, uh, seen, uh, a genuine miracle, only maybe psychosomatic healings, that type of thing. Um, so really I would say that, you know, when Bethel makes these claims that these miracles are occurring all the time at their church, like every week, you know, thousands of miracles, hundreds of miracles are happening a year. Um, there's just, there's no evidence, uh, for those type of claims. And I really think that we should be skeptical about miracle claims coming from teachers or groups that really have an unreliable track record mm -hmm. when it comes to miracles when it comes to their prophecies and their prayer declarations as we know they they do um and so um i'd say that exaggeration is really a hallmark of this movement and i i i think people need to recall from scripture that even if a prophet makes a prediction that does come to pass um but they lead people away from god we are told that they should not be listened to. That's in Deuteronomy 13. Uh, but throughout the rest of scripture, well, we're also warned repeatedly about false prophets performing what appear to be miraculous signs and wonders. So, for example, in, in Matthew 22 and Mark 13 and Revelation 13, uh, those are places we're warned that about false prophets that will perform these uh, signs and wonders and, and, and that even the elect are in danger of being deceived, that these will be so convincing, these, these signs and wonders. Um, so I think that if miracle claims are being performed in the context of um, really where there's known and demonstrable false teaching, then we should be skeptical of those claims. Yeah. And I'm glad that you mentioned prophecy, like the false prophecies, because you talk, you guys talk about this as well, uh, about how to test a prophet, about the unclear prophecies given uh out of this movement and it reminded me of where we do critical thinking and, and fallacies in uh, homeschool and one of the fallacies is uh there's many fallacies underneath this umbrella but it's a fallacy of ambiguity where they they purposely remain unclear so that it allows them to backpedal you know if, if it's wrong so that they mm -hmm. can say oh that's not really what i meant and there's this element of them being uh, not specific. And I'm really glad. I like how you guys really tackle with that in the book as well. You, you talk about that mm -hmm. and you talk about that. Uh, there's really never been a prophecy that's been given that has been on the point on the money clear. So I'm glad that you mentioned that. This ambiguity thing is interesting that you should mention because uh, it is true that oftentimes they speak in vague generalities. <clears throat> you read a sentence or you hear something they say from the pulpit and you're not entirely sure what they mean by it. And that's maybe intentional yes. because it's vague, it's ambiguous. 
to say that it's ambiguous is to say that it could mean more than one thing. Mm -hmm. And they can trade off of those two different meanings. And they can seem to mean one thing when they say it. And then if you confront them about it, they can say, oh, that's not what I meant. I meant this other thing. Uh, so, yeah, there is ambiguity in much of what they say. Vagueness is another one. There's a difference between vagueness and ambiguity. Vagueness uh, concerns uh, a lack of precision and a lack of uh, – you know, specificity. So you can speak in very vague terms uh, so that you don't know exactly what is being noted here. Uh, with ambiguity, there's usually two meanings to a statement. Mm -hmm. uh, but sometimes uh, it's not vague and it's not it's not ambiguous. They say something very clear and very distinct. And uh, and then they turn around and say something different mm. and virtually contradict themselves. That happens, too. A good example of this uh, relates to this very um, tragic story concerning Olive Heiligenthal, who was this infant, uh, two-year-old uh, little girl who was the daughter of uh, a couple in the church at Bethel Church in Reading. And uh, her mother uh, was on the worship uh, ministry team. And when she died unexpectedly one night in their home, uh, they just decided that uh, to expect a miracle of resurrection. And they began making prayer declarations, and they enlisted the uh, uh, ministerial cooperation from the leaders of the church, uh, from uh, Bill Johnson on down, to participate in this collective effort to raise her from the dead through prayer declarations. Now, prayer declarations, we haven't said too much about yet, but it's it's a form of praying without petitioning. It is a form, I believe, it is as if they think that by virtually prophesying her resurrection, they can bring it about through these declarations, and they're leveraging the hand of God by doing this, I think you said it was like using faith like a source of energy to yeah. make things happen. And that's prayer declaration. And they uh, d they teach prayer declarations as a, a distinct form of prayer in contrast to petitionary prayer, which is more familiar to most Christians, mm -hmm. because that's taught in Scripture, where we ask Jesus for things, we ask the Father for things in Jesus' name. And then we wait on him to see what in his sovereignty he chooses to do in response to our petitions. But we do it with humility and in faith, those two things, trusting uh, in his sovereign good purposes and his almighty power. But prayer declarations are not like petitions, and they teach that these are different things and that, in effect, petitionary prayer is – it's an inferior form of prayer because it can can be uh, reflect a lack of faith when you say, you know, Lord, I don't know what your desires are here, but we will to be healed in this case or to have this done for us, and we ask for it, but we will receive from you whatever you do. And they think that that sh that may show a lack of faith. So they pray declaration prayers for Olive's uh, resurrection, and then of course. Over a period of days as they did this, and it went global, it went viral. I mean, people from all over the world were chiming in and participating. <laughs> and, and, and Melissa, you know, 
that in the new age, uh, there are analogs to this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And their view is almost superstitious, I think, that uh, by doing this, you can leverage the hand of God. You can um, bring about what you're talking about. And the more people that participate, the more likely you, you concentrate more energy on the problem when you get each other to participate together. And this is what they did. Well, several days went by and Olive uh, was not raised. And by the sixth day, they realized it, it wasn't going to happen and they had to acknowledge that. So they announced that they would be planning a memorial service. And in a press release uh, where you would expect them to explain what happened, right? The world has been watching and waiting to see, you know, what transpires. They switched their explanation for what they'd been doing to petitionary prayer. What they said was, you know, we had asked God for something and uh, because of his mysterious will, it just hasn't transpired and come about in the way that we had hoped now in the way that we had prayed. But see, that's a completely different description of what they had actually been doing, namely uh, uh, declaration prayers, decrees in effect that she would be raised. So this is an example. I, I know it took quite a while to explain that, but it illustrates how even when they're very clear about what they're saying, sometimes they will flip it and say something different that actually conflicts with what they were saying before. So there's no ambiguity and no vagueness even. And I think it's important to note that even though we are critical of NAR teachings about miracles or even of the claims that all of these miracles are occurring in their midst, it's not to say that we don't believe that God does miracles today. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that um, people in NAR will often accuse their critics yeah, of, yeah. oh, well, you're anti-supernatural. You don't believe that God can do miracles. Um, how could you not, you know, not believe that? We're not saying that at all, yeah. at all. Yeah. But we're what we're critiquing is their teachings about miracles and their claims that these miracles are occurring all the time in their midst in the way that they claim. Yeah, you know, I'm glad you brought that up too. Uh, Romans 16, is it Romans 16? That talks about the division. Paul's talking about people bringing in bad teachings mm. and he's calling them yeah. them. He's calling them divisive. So that's yeah. right. Yeah. Right. Oh, 17 yeah, and 18, I think it is. In, yeah, in, that's in actually the, the verse we, we start out our book, you know, with the verse at the beginning, Romans 16, 17, I, Paul says, I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught avoid them so so it's the people who are bringing these teachings into the church that are causing division yes. it's yes. it's not the people that are responding and saying whoa wait a second here these teachings have never been taught in the history of the church you know in this way um and um you know they're they're causing damage and they're hurting people and they can't be supported by scripture you know mm -hmm. we're not the ones causing that division it's the people introducing those teachings Yes, exactly. And I think that, uh, oh, who was it? Uh, Chuck Smith, I think. Man, my brain's working today, believe it or not. Uh, he was talking about poison, purging poison in the church. You know, like it, it's not about opening up every teaching. You're, you're purging poison because if you continually accept it, you're going to die like a slow death. And mm -hmm. that's really what it's about. You know, this is what this is about. It's not, we're not picking on them. We're not doing anything like that. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's a good point. I did have something to ask about that, a follow-up, Doug, with what you were saying with whoever uh, wants to kind of uh, take a stab at this one, but uh, you, you write about this. There is an implication 
I'm finding when you don't receive your miracle or your healing. So you're talking about olive, like you're talking about a tragedy that I wonder, I think about them often. I think about the parents and I wonder how they're doing. I, I, I wonder how they handled that because if you have a belief system and this is why it hurts people. And this is how, it, in my opinion, how it can really shipwreck people's faith. Because if you have a belief system that says, no, you should always receive your healing. You should always uh, get your miracle, whatever it is. When you don't get that, what is the implication on the people that are hoping for that? Well, <clears throat> of course, uh, it sounds like it's uh, a lack of faith on the part of the participants. It could be on the part of the person who is seeking healing or the miracle. It could be on the part of those who are giving prayer declarations, the leaders themselves, and they might own that. They might say, well, it was a mm -hmm. lack of faith on my part, and it's probably my fault that it didn't come to pass, that we wow. lost that person or that the, the person was not raised. That's one implication. That's the most natural implication, especially when they teach that God intends for all people to be well, yeah. to heal everyone. How else do you explain it uh, unless you just say, well, it's some sort of mystery, but it can't be a mystery regarding the will of God if you've already been teaching that God's will is to heal everyone. And so what does it come down to other than the faith of the individual? And that just adds more injury to injury already that exists, you know, where the people are blamed. And, and my view of this is, uh, Melissa, that a true prophet should be able to know and discern and, and be and a minister of any kind with any any gifting for the ministry should be discerning that a, a person's faith may be weak or they may they may not be too sure that a miracle will happen and if you believe that that could uh short circuit the miracle and somehow prevent it from happening then you shouldn't be declaring that it's going to happen right that should not you shouldn't be giving them that kind of confidence if <clears throat> whether it happens can turn on something that depends on somebody's faith like that so it's irresponsible to be teaching this to people if you're then going to turn around and say well i guess it was you know a lack of faith or something like that on your part that there is the reason why it didn't happen and many people who've been part of NAR and have come out of it had said that that they did feel like it was their fault when they weren't healed. We still we share a story in our book of a woman named Jessica who suffered with infertility and she um and you know she followed Bill Johnson's teachings and NAR teachings that it was always God's will to heal, no exception. And so she started wondering, like, am I doing something wrong? And going into, you know, really doubt and despair, uh and so it's really sad to see, uh, you know, what happens when people believe these teachings and, and, and then what it, how it causes them to doubt themselves and despair and, um, and, and even question the Christian faith. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's how I can see how it can shipwreck people's faith. Mm -hmm. Now this kind of segues me into kind of a little bit more of touching on kind of those things, but in a more supernatural way. Uh, because I've read physics of heaven. You guys have read physics of heaven. I've actually made a few videos about this. I have, um, talked a little bit about, I believe it's chapter six, uh, Jonathan, what's his last name? Um, it's Welton, Jonathan Welton. I was going to say that. I, <laughs> I was like, w. <laughs> um, yeah, he wrote a chapter in that book and the chapter is entitled counterfeit versus authentic. And this whole book just grinds my gears as an ex-New Ager. They, they need to take this off the shelves at Bethel. I cannot believe that they would actually still have this up. But 
I digress. Point is, I would love to get your thoughts on this teaching because the argument goes that for every counterfeit that's out there, whether it's a psychic or uh, crystal energies, channeling spirits, whatever is over here in the new age, they claim, oh, well, there's an actual godly, spiritual, authentic version of that name it, whatever it is, tarot cards, astrology, you know, just whatever this is, well, there has to be an authentic version of this. And, you know, you think about, for example, a prophet. Well, that's the authentic version of a psychic. I would love to get your thoughts on that teaching. My my first thought about that is uh, that it's certainly not a logical truth. Hmm. You know, I teach philosophy and a logical truth is a truth that just is... Um, <clears throat> A, it's a truth that is known to be true, true just as a matter of logical fact, and that isn't the case here. They, they haven't shown that. They certainly haven't even described it in those terms, but it sounds like they just dogmatically assert this, that there's a counterpart to every uh, fictitious or counterfeit uh miracle or case of this, and that would be the genuine article. So that's an argument that the genuine is really happening right now. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's not certainly not a logical truth, but it's a general claim that they need to support. How could it be supported by observation? Well, that's not done either. They're not showing us evidence of that because you could say, well, here are some, you know, here are some authentic miracles and you can observe those. And then here are some counterfeit miracles and you can observe those. But even if you can observe the authentic and the counterfeit, you can't observe this so-called correlation or this uh, counterpart theory where it that there's one – if there's one, then there's the other, right? Mm -hmm. That part's not observed. Only the, the miracles and the counterfeits themselves are observed. But they're making a claim about how there must be – authentic miracles if there are these counterfeit cases. And that part is simply not observed. So it sounds like it would have to be a logical truth, but it isn't that. Mm -hmm. So what's it based on? Well, then the only other option is they know it by divine revelation. Mm -hmm. Well, they don't know it through scripture. That's not taught in scripture. So what special revelation have they received that would give them knowledge that this this is true? And um <clears throat> And uh, why should we believe their claim to have had revelation to that effect? So uh, there are all sorts of problems here. But another problem, <clears throat> another problem is if they are admitting that there can be counterfeits, uh, how are we to know that what they're presenting, representing to be the authentic, the real deal, mm -hmm. how do we know that's not a counterfeit, yeah. right? So it doesn't follow automatically, even if their principle is true. That if there are counterfeits, then there must be authentic cases. <clears throat> the genuine article must exist if there are counterfeits. It doesn't follow from that principle, even if it were true, that they are the ones with the authentic, genuine miracles. Mm -hmm. Really, what we're showing in our book is that mm -hmm. they're, they're, the practices that they're practicing um, in the name of uh, exercising miraculous gifts, activating miraculous gifts, that really those are a counterfeit of true biblical miraculous gifts the irony <laughs> yeah mm -hmm. yeah and it's uh i love it when anybody brings up any sort of philosophy that's great mm -hmm. um yeah you know it's interesting to me because they're trying to redeem the new age because it belongs to the church right like that's the whole argument is that oh these we're not getting the results that we want 
but wow, look at all this. And over here in the new age, they're getting all kinds of stuff. Wow. That must belong to us. We need to redeem these practices. And it's really strange to me. The argument is odd because it's like, you're redeeming something that God told you to divorce. You're, I mean, you, you don't redeem idolatry, right? Like there, there's not an authentic version of something that is sinful. And I always thought that that was just a strange argument, but it's one that I, I would love to do like a deep dive into someday as far as what their argument would be with these types of things. Um, I have another question for you guys. Now this one, I don't know how long it'll take for you guys to answer, uh, but there's something very... Uh, specific to NAR. So if people are still not following like, okay, well, what's the difference between my charismatic church and NAR? There's something very uh, specific to the NAR and that's the fivefold ministry and the seven mountain mandate. I would love for you guys, if you could, uh, to please break those down. What do those mean and why are they significant? Yeah. Fivefold ministry is a term referring to the core teaching in NAR. And that's the, the, well, the core teaching of NAR is that apostles and prophets are supposed to govern the church, right? But they base the fivefold ministry teaching on Ephesians 4.11. They would say that Ephesians 4.11 teaches that Christ gave five governing offices to govern the church through all, through all the ages, through all the centuries. So that'd be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And Ephesians 4.11 says, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. Um and so you'll also sometimes hear reference to Ephesians 4.11 ministries. That's also referring to, to these uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. But the thing is, this verse merely lists five types of like gifted leaders God has given the church. But it says nothing about this like formal hierarchical structure that must govern the church, you know, through all time. And um, so they're really, they've really, the NAR movement has really taken this one verse, Ephesians 4.11, and based their entire movement on this verse. Um, and so, um, you know, this, this Ephesians 4.11 verse says nothing about offices. It mm -hmm. says nothing about governing hierarchical offices, but that is the key, key verse. And so when you hear reference to fivefold ministry, they're referring to, that teaching sometimes people outside of nar will use that term as well um but generally it's a clue that that it's it's nar generally that that would show that something is nar if they use that term um the seven mountain mandate is a strategy uh it's basically a revelation that a number of prophets in nar claim to have received uh that um it's a strategy god has given the church to take dominion of the world and they would say the way to do that is is by uh, the church taking control of the seven major societal institutions. So that's um, government, media, family, business, education, church, and the arts. And that if the church takes control of these institutions, the apostles rise to the top. They have the spiritual authority to cast out the territorial spirits. These are allegedly like very high ranking demonic spirits that are believed to rule over those institutions. Um, they can cast those spirits out and then take control and then through those institutions, bring God's kingdom to earth. And um, NAR leaders have made it clear that the key to controlling those institutions is the work of apostles. Um, for example, the apostle Cheon has said, we must also recognize that apostles have the authority to govern on all seven mountains of culture. And, um, and so when this teaching has been exposed, um, 
even for example, in the Rediscover Bethel series, when, you know, Bethel released the six part video series where they were trying to clear up what they said were misconceptions about, about their beliefs and practices. And what they would say is, well, this seven mountain mandate is really about influencing culture. It's not about controlling society. It's, but the thing that's left out is all of these, these distinctive teachings about apostles and prophets that they must rise to the top, that they're the ones that God has given the authority uh, to rule over these institutions, to cast out the territorial, territorial spirits. So they leave out all of these controversial aspects of this mandate when they, when they, and they've kind of tried to recast it as really, it's just about influencing culture when really there's much more when you read their literature behind this teaching. It reminds me of spiritual gaslighting. Oh man, this is something that I see a lot and it drives me nuts. Um, where, uh, they speak out of both sides of their mouth where it's like, yes, we teach this. No, we don't. <laughs> um, okay. Yes. This is, this is the doctrine. This is something that, um, we, we believe in, that the seven mountain mandate is this, or we believe that healing is this. And that if you don't get a healing is no, that's not true. Like it's confusing. And so it's, it's very clear, especially if you read Bill Johnson's book, right. When a heaven invades earth, it's that's their eschatology. Like you have to kind of you have to go out into these, these spheres of influence and basically take them over to, yeah. to bring in another in. book, uh, Bill Johnson co-wrote a, a book with, um, Lance wall now called invading Babylon. And yeah. it's about the seven mandate. And they're very clear in there that this is a, a mandate about how to infiltrate and control. And, um, it's very explicit in, in the, the teaching. Yeah. And so it's like a backpedaling sometimes. And I know that in the book, you guys talked to, that you, you guys, I want my audience to understand that you guys don't just from afar research this stuff. Like you went to Bethel, you've met with some of these people, you, you sit down and you are boots on the ground looking into this stuff. You, you, you read the books, you watch the videos. Um, I think that my audience, it's important for them to understand that there's an element of, uh, you know, you, you guys having your hands in this and understanding it and uh, relaying it in a way that we can understand. So the information you're giving is not just, you know, a, a guest. It's not something that you don't have some sort of understanding about, uh, you know, and I haven't done nearly as much research as you guys have, but just simply reading their books, there's, it's, it's strange to see like damage control whenever they're called out for something they actually believe. I mean, own it. If you don't own it, then you're, I mean, people are confused even within mm -hmm. Bethel. Um, speaking of Bill Johnson, so this is something I've noticed from him uh, when it comes to responding to critics. Now, he'll he, I see that he kind of takes the high road sometimes where he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll pray for them. God bless them. You know, I'll pray for them. Like, we don't know what we're talking about or what we're doing, that we're just being mean, right? We're just being being the bullies. We have a religious spirit or whatever it is. And um, I call, I call this kind of being like a humble brag where it seems pious, uh, but really it's, it's like somebody coming to you with a, a explicit objection to something that you're doing and that something is wrong of what you're doing. And instead of addressing it, you're like, oh, I'll pray for you instead of uh, addressing it. He turns into like a pious victim. Uh, without actually addressing the issues. And I would love to get your guys' thoughts on this. Well, one thing I wanted to say is, you know, it's nice that that Bill Johnson says that he prays for his critics. Um, 
But one thing people need to be aware of is that he has repeatedly vilified his critics um, uh, and those who don't share his exotic beliefs. And he's tagged them with negative labels in his, his writings, for example, in his books. He's referred to them as fear-oriented theologians, as being soul-driven, carnal Christians, um, whom he says are under the influence of an antichrist uh, demonic spirit. Um, He's referred to them as self-appointed watchdogs who poison the church with their own fears. And so, so he's really through, through the years really tagged his critics with these very negative labels. And then, so then when he go, comes later and says, well, you know, he prays for his critics and in the rediscover Bethel series, they, they try to make it look like that they've been nothing but gracious towards their critics. Um, you know, and that's really not what comes through in, in the, the teachings and the writings. Uh, so, you know, where for those like ourselves who have researched these things and read these things, you know, it's um, what they show in the Rediscover Bethel series doesn't how about how they are towards their critics, I don't think reflects the reality. Um, and it's not just Bill Johnson, other NAR leaders have done the same thing. Daniel Kalinda uh, did a video, I don't know if you've seen it, Melissa, but it's called What is the NAR and Am I Part of It? It's on YouTube. And he's uh, he's the successor. He's the successor to Reinhard Bonnke. So he leads a really influential ministry, Daniel Klinda. But in this video, he describes critics pejoratively as heresy hunting evangelicals. He chides them for criticizing today's apostles and says, and these are quotes, they've always hated charismatics. He says that uh, they're jealous of them. Uh, because charis and and I'm I'm using some of my own words here summarizing, but because they have the largest churches, the charismatics have the largest churches in the world and the most popular Christian music. Meanwhile, he says the critics sit there and they're boring, depressing, dying churches. So he he sets up this straw man to basically say that the critics are just anti-charismatic, which isn't true. That there there's many charismatics who are concerned about NAR right to begin with. Um, but then, then Daniel Kalinda goes on and he says that if people who have concerns about NAR continue ref to refusing to work with NAR leaders, they will be, and this is a quote, a direct quote, they will be left with nothing but a bunch of bitter, balding, middle-aged incels living in their parents' basement surrounded by empty pizza boxes and Dorito bags, wearing Call of Duty headsets and bathrobes and trolling everybody online. Um, so, so this is the type of language that leaders in this movement are putting out there to describe their critics, but then they turn around and say that the critics are being divisive, um, you know, and that they're praying for us and things like that. So I, I think people need to be aware of that. Well, it's also a uh, test of humility, how you respond to your critics hmm. and to, uh, say, I don't need to respond even when they offer biblical criteria for evaluating a movement, uh, they that, that how is that an, a demonstration of humility uh, and an acknowledgement that you could be mistaken mm -hmm. and that you would enter into dialogue and and provide you know grounded answers to very direct questions about the things that that you're being asked. This kind of reaction to criticism is not what you expect from somebody who has those kinds of character traits uh, that that we look for, mm -hmm. uh, that reflect the fruit of the Spirit. And humility is one of them, to be sure. So, um, yeah, I think that uh, you can project humility, but how do you demonstrate it when you've got people that have 
very sincere questions and concerns and have put them in writing and have offered them up as legitimate criticisms and are willing to have a dialogue and be shown where they're mistaken if they are. And you just write them off and say, you take, you know, what the spiritual high ground as an authoritative apostle. And when they say that, you know, these are self-appointed critics, well, who who are these people that call themselves apostles and prophets if they're not self-appointed uh, themselves? And if they aren't, if they are appointed by God, then uh, presumably they would be able to produce evidence that they are the real thing that they have. And and Paul was very concerned to establish evidence of his own apostolic authority, and he had the humility to acknowledge that. Um, he needed to do this, and he couldn't just assert it and expect people to believe it. So we have biblical examples of what people in leadership with true humility really look like and how they respond to criticism. Yeah, it's a very don't look behind the curtain type of mentality, it seems, and maybe like a poisoning of the well, maybe, where it's like you're going to make the critics look crazy. Uh, Segwaying into another topic here, something that really grinds my gears is the passion translation. Um, I'm kind of vocal about my distaste for it. And you have a whole chapter dedicated to this. Can you share uh, in so many words why you believe, and uh, I agree with you, why this translation should be avoided at all costs? It's dangerous. Um, it has so many hazards that one highly respected scholar, Craig Blomberg, suggested that it should come with a Surgeon General's warning. Um, and um, Simmons, Brian Simmons, the one who produced the Passion Translation, is an our apostle. And he claims that Jesus Christ visited him personally, commissioned him to produce this new translation of the Bible. He claims that secrets of the Hebrew language were downloaded and breathed into it breathed into him by Jesus directly. Um, he's claimed that there's an angel named Passion, whom he named his translation after, who who is like a partner with him in, in this making this translation. Um, but he has no expertise in the original languages. He he himself will admit that he's not an expert in the original languages. And the really concerning thing about this translation, the so-called translation, it's not even a reliable paraphrase, is is what we show in our chapter. But the, the dangerous thing is it adds NAR teachings to the Bible. So it actually makes it sound like that the Bible supports their teachings, that there will be new apostles, that, they, that there will be continuous rev revelation that believers should expect to receive, um, that all believers can work greater miracles than Jesus worked. These are all or great, yeah, greater miracles than Jesus work. These are all things that uh, with the tampering of the verses in this translation with the Bible verses, they're, they're inserted into the Bible and, and many more examples could be given of these NAR teachings that have been smuggled into the text. Enthusiastically endorsed by Bill Johnson. Yeah. It's featured prominently in their church bookstore mm -hmm. uh, on display there. And of course it's used for um, scripture reading and devotional study and preaching and all, all sorts of things that, um, you know, people rely on it for their knowledge of scripture. And Bill Johnson continues, he persists in endorsing this translation, even though this swath of reputable Bible scholars have come out critiquing it and warning about it. You know, the, the series Mike Winger, I know you're familiar with, did with these scholars that he commissioned that, that did reviews of this translation, and they show how problematic and dangerous it is. Yet Bill Johnson, 
and other NAR leaders persist in in promoting it. They lack the same credentials. Uh, they don't have any greater credentials than Brian Simmons does. And so um, it's a hollow claim to say that this is one of the greatest strides forward in Bible translation when they have no uh, knowledge of how translation works themselves. Bill Johnson has said something like that, that this is one of the greatest things to happen to Bible translation. We offer examples of verses that are tampered with in these ways that Holly described. So if people are looking for you know, concrete cases, examples of this to support the point, uh, that's a good place to look for. Mike Winger, he walked with this so we could run with it, this topic. And so I'll leave a link in the description to the series that he did on this because he goes pretty deep and it's pretty hard to refute. Mm -hmm. So thank you guys uh, for covering that. Now I have one more question. Um, now this is something that comes up a lot and it's probably one of the most core questions I'll ask you in this whole interview, because people might be listening to this and wrestling with a few things. And one of the things that people I'm sure are thinking about is, okay, well, what's the deal breaker here, right? So there's some, some bad theology. There's some questionable things that they might consider to be secondary. So I would say there's bad theology and there's bad teachers. Then there's false the theology and false teachers. And some people don't think it's a big deal. What's going on? at Bethel here. So for those watching, how would you stress why this is uh, all dangerous? And what are your thoughts about those that say that Bethel teaches an outright false gospel and they're all false teachers? I'll start. And I think Doug may have some things he wants to say here, but I think people make a mistake and they assume that there's only like two levels of error. There's heresy. That would be like denying an essential Christian doctrine, like like if you deny that Jesus is God or you deny the Trinity, that makes you a heretic. You're outside the Christian faith, right? So people think there's that level of error. And then they think there's kind of just these secondary, non-important errors, uh, you know, maybe about the style of worship music you listen to or something about eschatology or something like that. But they forget that there's this category of error of, of doctrines that are aberrant. That means that they are serious doctrinal error. And, and they're dangerous. They pose dangers to those who embrace them. People who embrace aberrant theology are in danger of shipwrecking their faith. Um, and and the, the teachings lead to uh, uh, spiritual abuse. They lead to confusion mm. about the nature of the gospel. Mm. Um, in the case of new age practices, they, they could be opening doors up to demonic influence. You know, these, so there's some really serious um, uh, danger here with the teachings. Um, the, uh, and uh, one thing people forget too is in scripture, when you see the apostles uh, warn against false teaching, they don't warn just about doctrines that are outright heretical, like denying the deity of Christ. They do warn about those things, but um, they also warn about teachings that would fall into the cat, what we would describe as aberrant theology. So, for example, in Jude, false teachers are spoken of as relying on their dreams, among other things. And in 2 Corinthians 11, we could see uh, when Paul's critiquing these, these so-called, you know, the super apostles, these, these false teachers, um, they were claiming that the work they did was on the same terms as what the apostles of Christ did, what Paul did. So my point is that in scripture, there's really strong warnings about teachings that are uh, aberrant, and they may not rise to the level of outright heresy, um, but it doesn't mean that they're not really dangerous and, and that we shouldn't warn and caution against those teachings. And so I think people, people forget that. Hmm. 
Well, and they have practical implications as well. So it's not just what do you believe and is it true, but it's how are you functioning? How do you conceive of the Christian life and of growth and maturity and uh, prayer and corporate worship? All of these these things are infected with this error. And uh, just to illustrate, you know, uh, in theology, theologians distinguish between systematic theology, sometimes they call it dogmatic theology, and uh, these are basic truths in major categories of belief about God, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the church, and so forth. And uh, our source of knowledge uh, for this is the, the scriptures. But there's another branch of theology called practical theology, which concerns the things that we do together and individually. Uh, prayer is an example. So what is your theology of prayer? That's a question of practical theology. Uh, what kind of activity is prayer and how do you do it effectively and properly? Um, that too should be informed by Scripture. So now we come to um, their teaching about petitionary prayer and how they teach, uh, in effect, that it's inferior to an, another form of praying, which is vastly greater and much more reflective of deep faith, and that is uh, decrees or uh, declaration prayers. Well, if declaration prayers are not taught in Scripture, and that's not a practice that is commended by Scripture and explained in Scripture, then where is it coming from? And more important, are you really living a prayerful life if that's the way you pray? I would say that if that's not prayer, but it's something else, then you may think that you're a very prayerful person when, in fact, uh, you're not you're, you're not prayerful at all. You just believe that you are because of what you've been taught. And, of course, in this movement, actually in the church in general, most of our practical, practical theology is learned. Uh, through observation and imitation. We see it done uh, by people around us, and we begin to do the same thing. You know, we learn to pray that way. Sometimes children growing up in Christian homes and going to church all their lives learn how to pray chiefly that way rather than through a study of Scripture. Mm -hmm. Or uh, adults who come to faith, they are around Christians, and they think, oh, well, this is how you pray. And you imitate their models. Well, that's what's going on in this movement is that people are imitating these models and they learn language, lingo, ways of talking about God, and they acquire expectations about what intimacy with God looks like and what it means to be a vibrant Christian and to be part of a lively spirit-led church. Mm -hmm. And most of this is just insinuated or caught in the atmosphere by being around people who do it a certain way. And so then they they may not have biblical criteria or biblical principles and standards for truly evaluating a work of God and knowing whether a church is tracking with the Spirit or not. It's not all about signs and wonders, which can be performed even by false prophets, according to Jesus and uh, other New Testament New Testament writers. Uh, who've warned us about this possibility. So yes, it's a very real uh, risk to our thinking and our practice if we aren't careful to examine these things in the light of Scripture. Hmm. Yeah, would you? So let me ask you guys, If is this a Corinthians issue where they're brothers, but they're being corrected? You know what I mean? Where Paul is coming and saying, hey, you're an error. Let's mm -hmm. correct this. Or is this like, oh, avoid them at all costs? I know it's like sometimes there's a spectrum of that, but what are your thoughts on that? 
Well, I think that, uh, you know, we can leave judgments about whether they're, you know, a particular uh, prophet or apostle or self-professed apostle or prophet really is even a believer. Uh, we can leave that uh, to God's uh, all-knowing understanding of the hearts of men and women uh, and not take on that role ourselves. But what we can do is we can examine the scriptures, look for the truth, and compare what's being offered with what the scriptures teach. Mm -hmm. And if we see a digression from that or something that's uh, in you know a contrast to that, then we have to call it out. And uh, I would warn people against it, regardless of whether the people who are teaching these things are deceivers and know it, or are deceived themselves and don't realize that it is uh, a deception, or if they have you know good motives and great intentions and they're perfectly sincere, that's not the question. We're not evaluating the hearts of men and women here. Mm -hmm. We're looking at what they teach, and then we're saying uh, we can do better. You know, I don't think that uh, we we're seeing much in the way of genuine miracles coming from Bethel, despite all of the. Uh, you know, the advertising, mm -hmm. there's a lot of advertising that's the, and, and not much delivery on what's mm -hmm. promised. But I would say that even if it's possible that some of it's authentic and really happening, and we don't deny that miracles occur, as Holly said, mm -hmm. I would say that their track record as prophets who have failed, as people who distort the scriptures and uh, who represent themselves as authoritative apostles and prophets without evidence, those are all reasons to be cautious and skeptical. And if you're looking for a miracle, maybe you should look somewhere else than at a place where uh, it breeds this kind of uh, misguided understanding of uh, spiritual truths. Yeah, we do know in our book that there are many sincere, lovely believers who've gotten caught up in the teachings of, of this movement. I share, I share a story in the book about how uh, my husband, while we were dating mm -hmm. uh, before we were married, he was involved in this movement and, and came out of it. Um, so, and we've heard from many people, many people who've contacted us who are, uh, who used to be part of this movement and, and their eyes are open and they've come out of it. And so um, it's, it's, you know, we, we know that there are many sincere believers who are caught up in this movement, but, but the teachings are dangerous and, and, and can lead people to shipwreck their faith. Mm -hmm. And so they need to be warned about those teachings. Great. Thank you guys so much for, for covering that. Um, I know that was, I said that was the last question, but, um, I'm a liar, liar, pants on fire. I have one more question. <laughs> um, right. yeah. So, uh, one thing that people, oh man, they ask about this a lot is the music. I would love to get your guys' thoughts on music that's made at Bethel. Could you speak about that a little bit? Yes. Well, they're very intentional about using their music to convey their message and to communicate mm -hmm. it, to spread it globally and into your church and my church, uh, for that matter. Uh, many people who don't know much about the specific teachings of Bethel and don't know much about Bill Johnson or Chris Vallotton, the apostle and prophet, uh, lead apostle and prophet at the church, uh, have have uh, been singing their songs. Uh, music produced by the Bethel Music Label are being it's being sung and used in corporate worship and uh, at concerts uh, all across this country and around the world. And uh, I would imagine most of the people that are viewing this uh, discussion right now have uh, been in churches where they have been asked to participate in singing Bethel music uh, songs. 
And uh, so in, we have a whole chapter in which we discuss ways in which this music is being used mm -hmm. as a gateway into the new apostolic reformation. And people tell us repeatedly uh, when we ask how they became involved with NAR and how they ended up at the Bethel School of Supernatural Ministries or just visiting the church, how this began for them. And for many of them, it was just hearing Bethel music uh, in their church services, uh, in churches that are otherwise completely innocent of having a NAR influence. And so churches have invited this error into their own homes, so to speak, and encouraged uh, through this practice to encourage their people to compare their experience of church life there with what is being presented as a kind of mythology about church life at Bethel. And the, when people make the comparison, a lot of the time, I think they feel like we're missing something and we should be incorporating more of what Bethel has to offer. Mm -hmm. And so churches are running into trouble uh, at the grassroots level as people go to Bethel and come back um, wanting to replicate the, what they thought they observed uh, now in their own home church. Yeah, NAR teachings have been smuggled into the music, and we give specific examples of lyrics uh, from Bethel Music and, and other NAR-influenced churches to show how that's been done. But you can find prayer declarations, you can find dominionism, uh, just the expectation that miracles should be occurring all the time and that they're routine and that those miracles are actually signs of God's love for us. For example, miracles of healing uh, you know, exp uh, all of these things are incorporated into the music and we give specific examples in, in the chapter in our book mm. and people don't realize that there are buzzwords and our buzzwords. I was just going to say that. Yeah. Literally. Into the lyrics. Yeah. Yeah. And if you don't know the words, you don't know the NAR teachings, you don't know the buzzwords, you could sing along and think that you're singing one thing and not really know what's behind it. Yes. And I, you guys very, uh, eloquently, put, I'm not sure if it's a whole chapter dedicated to it or not, but you talk about that. You, you very succinctly put, Hey, this is NAR terminology. This is what this is. And mm -hmm. you define it and you will guys, you'll be so shocked with how many of these words compile together. Once you see it, you can't unsee it, right? Like once you hear it, you're like, Oh, I know what that means. And I know what he's saying now because Holly and Doug defined that, you know? Mm -hmm. So Guys, yeah, Counterfeit Kingdom, in my opinion, book of the year. I think that mm. every Christian needs to read this. They need to know it because this isn't just something that's isolated in California, right? Northern California in Reading. Uh, it is spreading out to churches everywhere, right? And on some level. And I think that's a goal of theirs is that they they want to go and touch um, and, and distribute. That's what BSSM is really it, it, my understanding about is they want to duplicate these things at other churches. So you have to know what it is and recognize it in order to kind of combat it and def defend the faith, you know, and defend what the Bible does teach about it. Uh, there are a million questions. <laughs> I could be with you here all day talking about this book, things in it. Um, before we sign off though, is there anything that you would like to add or say to my audience about this topic or your book? Uh, it's certainly not uh, an indication of any lack of faith if you ask for evidence for the things that you're asked to believe. Hmm. And so uh, if somebody purports to be an apostle or a prophet, you really should 
um, ask them uh, to present the evidence that their authority is as they claim. And uh, and then, you know, if you if you begin to suspect something's not quite right, we find this happens quite a lot with people is uh, there are many people that are sitting in churches that are influenced by NAR and they begin to have this sense that something isn't quite right. Maybe it's a good idea to listen to that and then try to pinpoint what is the problem here and begin to ask questions. And uh, again, my view is that our, our, the Word of God really does give us what we need to live effective Christian lives. And, uh, and we need to trust that and, and learn how to nurture ourselves on the Scriptures and turn to them for a knowledge of the truth of these things. And uh, if, if you have questions about other claims, about other revelations that are being given, uh, even if they happened to be authentic, uh, you could the, God is gracious. He's not going to uh, judge you for having questions, good questions, and even having doubts about those things. That's right. And just what I wanted to add um, is if there's anything we didn't talk about today, I, I read the comments after interviews and I'll see people say, well, they didn't address this verse or they didn't talk about that, or I can't even, you know, I can't even believe they didn't address very we much. We only have so much time. I you know, <laughs> and, and I'm saying, go to the books, go to yeah. Counterfeit Kingdom, go to yeah. our previous books, because um, like a new apostolic reformation, a biblical response to a worldwide movement is a really deep dive into yeah. a lot of scripture. It's heavily documented, a lot of arguments um, as well that are uh, not addressed in Counterfeit Kingdom. Um, and so go to those books um, and see if it, they answer your questions. Uh, guys, everything we talked about, any relevant resources, books, things that I feel like maybe you could, uh, that you would learn from and would benefit from, I will leave it in the description of this video. So please be sure to check it out uh, and let me know your thoughts. What did you think? Uh, is there something that you want to know more about? Is there something that uh, maybe specifically you would want to know more? Do you agree? Do you disagree? Let us know in the comments below. And Holly and Doug, thank you so much for coming on my channel today. It was an honor. Thanks so much for Melissa for having us on. This was great. Thank you, Melissa.